Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Diane Guerrero, and this is How It Is, the show where you hear women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. We are back with a brand new season all about value. And on this episode, we're talking about a topic that can make people feel a little nervous. Money. You're a queen. Hola. Hola, mi gente. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. Did you miss me? I've missed you. This season, our theme is values. The value of our money, the value of our time, the value of our work, the value of play, and how we incorporate our values into our life every day. Because there are so many assumptions about what we value and how we are valued. Joining us this season to talk about our values will be some incredible women, including the artist Chantal Martin, the activist Cecile Richards, and oh yeah, the woman who has scored the most soccer goals in the world, Abby Wambach. You guys are in for a treat, not gonna lie. One of the most obvious ways we are valued is in cold, hard cash. Which, let's be honest, making money is pretty great. And what's that line that Cardi says? Oh, right. I like million dollar deals. Where's my pen? Bitch, I'm signing. I like those Balenciagas. The ones that look like socks. I like going to the Tula. I put rocks all in my watch. So today we're talking about the value of money. Having it, getting it, spending it, saving it. We're going to hear from three women who learned about the value of a dollar in very different ways. Author Roxanne Gay, the venture capitalist Shiza Shahid, and our first guest, the comedian Miss Pat. The funny thing about money is how we value it changes all the time, right? Like, what does it even mean to have enough money? Oh, good. Let's talk about money. Look, I got money to spend in here. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. The only reason people are nice to me is because I have more money than God. If grateful pay the bills, we'd all be Bill Gates. So what do you want, money? Every cent. When a man gives you money, you give him control. It's just money. Man, woman, who cares? It's fluid. Someone needs it, you give it. You need it, you take it. I would feel a lot better about giving you the money if you went to a therapist. You buy your two-year-old daughter $80 shoes from France, and you're just giving me a hard time. I'm uncomfortable with this conversation. We shouldn't be talking about money. Why not? We talk about everything else. I have a comfortable life now, but... Listen, I've been broke before. I I remember when I was first working as an actor in New York and I didn't have enough money for my Metro card to pay for the subway. So (laughs) 
I needed to get back and forth from auditions, so I would stand outside the turnstile and just wait for people to come out to see if someone would give me a free swipe. Oh my goodness, it was so embarrassing, but it's like you had to do what you had to do. And believe me, girl, I was going to get to that audition. (laughs) I was always hungry because I was always eating just the cheapest thing I could find. I mean, you know, a couple noodles, the dollar menu from McDonald's. But I think I learned a lot from those days. I can't say that I wish that on anybody. But I will say that having nothing really pushed me to take risks because, I mean, what did I have to lose? I didn't have a security net. My parents had been deported. I had no family. And I really had to hustle if I wanted to chase my dreams. So I fully respect the struggle. But at 18, I got my life back together, y'all. I went through the welfare to work program. And I don't know if y'all are familiar with the welfare to work program, but it's a lot like diabetes. If the mama get it, there's a good chance the daughter might get it. (laughs) My mama got it, my sister got it, my nieces got it, I got it. Comedian and author Pat Williams learned about making money as a little kid in Atlanta where she was raised in a bootleg house, which is basically an underground bar where people go to get drunk for cheap. Back then, Miss Pat was called Rabbit. And now she's written a memoir of the same name. Her book is an example of how determination, a sense of humor, and a whole lot of love can get you through anything that life throws at you, even if you have zero money. And I mean zero money. Now, Rabbit lives on as an alter ego, but Miss Pat is still making it happen. She's developing a TV show. She tours the country, making us all laugh with her very real stories about growing up, eating ketchup sandwiches, and something she calls chicken ass. When I was a child, money meant more to me than anything. My first memory of money is when um. We lived in a bootleg house with my grandfather, and my mama would have me go in and take the drunk people wallet out of their back pocket. And for every wallet I stole, she would give me a dollar, which was a lot of money in 79. You know, I could go down the street and play Pac-Man. Pac-Man had just came out, 79.80. So, you know, if I steal five wallets, that's five dollars. That's a lot of money. Kids in the hood didn't have five dollars back then. So I was really rich. I could stay at the Pac-Man machine all day. My name was all up and down the Pac-Man machine. <laughs> so, you know, it's not something that I look forward to. It was something that she forced me to do. But in return, I got a dollar per wallet, which was a lot of money. You know, it meant I could go to the store and I could buy candy. I can go to the store and I could buy me something to eat. I could stay away from the bootleg house all day because I hated being in that house because it was full of people. So if I made $5, I was gone all day. So it meant a lot. I became a mother at 14. And I don't care how old you are when you have a baby. We all got that motherly instinct in us. And it, mine just woke up. And I started to realize it's not me anymore. I'm a kid now. I'm in the eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. I was like, I got to protect this child. And then I started thinking about what I had been through. My daughter didn't know I was that young until she was in the eighth grade. And she did a, a, a family tree. And she said... My mom is 28, and the teacher stopped her and said, there's no way your mom is this young. That means y'all 14 years apart. 
My daughter said she looked around the class like, y'all mama ain't 28. They was like, no, I'm mama 50. <laughs> my daughter came home and said, my teacher said you can't be 28. That's when I realized, oh, my God, I had two kids at 15. Because I never thought about it. it was, my life was so fast that I never really thought about how young I was other than when I went to prison for selling drugs. So, you know, when I turned my life around, I had to go to her. The hardest thing, I had to go to her and apologize. I said, I'm sorry. I did the best I could do. I was 14. She was there when I got shot. She was there when her daddy beat me. So I had a lot of apologizing to do. And I told her, I said, I did my best. But, you know, her and my first son, they are so proud of me because they was there for the struggle. My son read the book one day and he said, he said, because he was, he, was, he was in Pamples. He was like, I had no idea that you'd been through what you went through. And he was crying. And I was like, what's wrong? He's like, I read your book. And I said, son, I didn't know you could read. <laughs> I learned uh, the right way to make money is when I met my husband. And he was, you know, he just got out of the military. He was working at Simmons Mattress. And I'm selling drugs. I'm forging checks. And he was like, yo. Why don't you get a real job? He said, you know, when you force those people checks, uh, you hurting them. And I'm like, how am I hurting them? I don't know them. He said, how would you like to go to your account and somebody done messed up all your money? And I never thought about it that way. And he was like, you can, he said, he said, you can earn more than anybody can give you. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, this is how we do it. This is he was like, no. Do you want to change? And I was like, well, how do I do it? He said, get a job. I was like, a job? Don't nobody work. <laughs> I went and got a job at McDonald's making $4.75 an hour. I never felt so humiliated in my life. But he also told me, he said, what if you die, get killed in the street? Who's going to take care of your kids? Do you want to see your kids with your kid's father? So I was willing to suck up my pride and go make those $4.75 an hour to make a change in my life. I do have a, I have a bit about my uh, first set of kids being Medicaid kids and my second set of kids by my husband being Blue Cross Blue Shear kids. And I tell you, when I finally got health care other than me Medicaid, I felt so proud to be able to go in there and pull out a card to say, I'm married to somebody that cares about their family or I'm married to somebody that take care of us. I got health care. Never thought I would have a health care card other than Medicaid. And I, I, I tease my kids a lot because, you know, they had totally two different lifestyles. I mean, both of them, I think both of them had pretty good, but the Blue Cross Blue Shear kids didn't have to sell crack. They went to a better school. They went to private school. They, they could get braces where my, my Medicaid kids can get no braces. You know, money is something that I've not always had. But with these kids, you know, I was fortunate to be able to take care of them, breaking that cycle, making sure they don't become what I went through, teenage pregnancy, high school dropout, convicted felon. I spend every dime to keep them from going through what they went through. When you grow up a certain way, you want to make sure your kids don't go through what you went through. Rabbit is still in me, and she she pushes the devil out of Miss Pat. Rabbit is a hustler. Now, I don't like to be called Rabbit, but she's still in me. I constantly remind my kids about Rabbit all the time, and it's like, oh, we don't want to hear that. But and I tell my kids, you know, when, they, when they're slacking, I say, when I was your age, I did this and I did that. And my husband's like, Pat, they had a different life. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, you know, without Rabbit, it wouldn't be no Miss Pat. 
I wouldn't have these stories. That rabbit went through the struggles that Miss Pat is able to tell today. When I was a child, money meant more to me than anything. Now money means to me freedom because uh, <laughs> I say this on stage, I don't have to eat chicken ass no more. <laughs> Boy, if I, I, I tell people all the time, that was rough when I grew up and realized my mother was feeding me that crap. <laughs> and, you know, I can, I, can, I can eat better. I can live better. I can dress better. I can have better things. So it's, it's freedom. And I broke the cycle, the legal way. I mean, in my family, nobody ever leaves anybody anything but maybe a Section 8 certificate. My dream is to leave each one of my kids a house and some money. So it means, finance means a lot to me. I, I don't want to be in debt. I don't want to owe anybody. You know, as a first-generation American, I think about that all the time, about how to build generational wealth. For someone like me or Miss Pat, the statistics are pretty terrifying. In America, for every $100 in white family wealth, black families hold just $5.04. And for the average Latino family, it would take 84 years to amass the same amount of wealth white families have today. We also learned from Shiza Shahid, our investment expert, that just three people have more money than 50% of most Americans combined. Shiza is the co-founder of the Malala Fund, a global nonprofit whose mission is to secure access to girls' education worldwide. These days, she's putting her energy into funding entrepreneurs with a social mission through the venture capital fund Now Ventures. And today, she came by to remind us that we hold the power to make change in the world. Women do. So I spent my childhood and my adolescence volunteering in women's prisons, in microfinance and microenterprise. I worked in a camp for internally displaced people when a massive earthquake hit Pakistan, killing about 70,000 people. I was living at a time when Pakistan had a military dictator who was taking away many civil liberties and I became quite active in protesting those moves and demanding social justice. So when I was about 14, I began volunteering with an organization that was creating programs for women around microfinance and microenterprise. These were women that lived in in the slums around the city, so you know, they had very little and many of them were working in households as domestic help. And everything about their life was tenuous. You know, even their homes weren't permanent structures. They were living on essentially borrowed land and, and any day could be forced to vacate. And so everything was so uncertain in their lives. And I remember this one woman in particular whom we gave a loan to, along with some business training. And she used that loan to start a corner shop to lift her family out of debt and to send her three daughters to school, despite all the uncertainty, despite all the things that we take for granted that she didn't have, that she was going to choose to make a better life for her daughters, that stayed with me. And this was a pattern that we saw over and over again, and one that the data supported, that when you empowered a woman to earn a dollar, 
She invested 80 to 90% back into her family and her community. It was typically 30 to 40% for men. So if there's a silver bullet in fighting poverty, it's economically empowering women. Yes! It is so satisfying to know that the research bears this out. Empowering women financially is the way to change the world. So, now we get to talk to someone very empowered. We are about to hear from the one, the only, Roxanne Gay. Roxanne is the author of a bunch of bestsellers, including Bad Feminist, Difficult Women, and Hunger. For newcomers to Roxanne's work, well, let me just say, I'm jealous. I'm jealous that you get to have the experience of reading her for the first time. Roxanne learned the value of her words pretty early on in her writing career. And one of the five bazillion things I love about her is that when it comes to getting paid, she is never willing to compromise. I've been writing since I was four years old. And in my 20s, I wrote a few essays and I wrote many, many bad stories. But I started to really gain traction with my writing career while I was getting my PhD at Michigan Technological University in Houghton, Michigan. And I just started writing um, blog posts. And someone at a website called HTML Giant saw those blog posts and invited me to contribute there. Then someone at a website called The Rumpus saw what I was writing for HTML Giant. And then someone at Salon saw what I was writing at The Rumpus. And then at The Guardian, they saw what I was writing at Salon. And then The New York Times saw what I was writing at The Guardian. And so each writing opportunity parlayed. It was not until I started writing for Salon that I was paid for my writing. And the first piece I wrote, I was paid $50 for at Salon. So I was living on a graduate student stipend and student loans while I was living in a small apartment in Michigan, just writing whenever I could. When I started to see how many people were reading my work in the various online outlets that I was publishing in, I started to realize there is value to what I'm saying. And in general, whenever I publish something somewhere, I do ask for the analytics because it helps me to make a stronger case for the next time that someone comes to me with an offer. You know, we live in a capitalist society, so in general, it's what the market will bear. And I look at what men are being paid and I ask for that, and sometimes more. I, I think it's really hard to figure out what you're worth as a writer because most outlets pay such a pittance. And so it was when I no longer needed the money that I decided to set a dollar amount that was ridiculous, which is generally 3 to $4 a word. And I picked that number because it takes time and energy and effort to write. And if you can't pay that, that's totally fine, but I don't need the work. And so for me, that was a good number where I could narrow down because I was getting so many opportunities and I just couldn't. I hate saying no, so I found a different way to say no. It's a little passive aggressive, but it's also what I believe I'm worth. There are plenty of great writers in the world. We both know it. 
And so it's not that I think I'm that special. It's just this is what it costs to get my words in your publication. Uh, And there are plenty of other writers who may or may not work for less. But I think more writers need to start holding this line so that we can lift everybody up and everyone can start making a more equitable wage for their writing. Like we should not be writing for less than a dollar a word. How do we do that? We do that by all holding the line. And unfortunately, there's just no real way. There's always going to be someone who's like, yeah, I'll work for a penny a word. And so it's frustrating. In fact, a magazine, a glossy magazine recently asked me to do a profile of a young actress. And they said it would be really empowering, but would I lower my rate? And I said, if you really care about empowerment, you'll pay me $3.50 a word, which was a discount on my usual rate. And that was that. And I have no regrets because my time is really valuable and my words are valuable. I had a book deal um, with Ted Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, to publish a book called How to Be Heard, which was basically going to be a treatise on how to use your voice and make an impact. And one morning I woke up and I saw on the internet that Simon & Schuster had paid Milo Yiannopoulos a quarter of a million dollars, which was many, many times more than what they were paying me. Um, But that's not why I was upset. And I thought about it and I just got angrier and angrier because enabling that kind of white supremacy is really unacceptable to me, particularly because Milo's not a true believer. He's a provocateur. And so he's just doing it for attention, which makes it even worse. It's one thing if you have a genuine conviction, but it's another thing when you pretend to have conviction simply because you like attention. And so I thought about it, and I emailed my agent, and I said, I don't want to work with Simon & Schuster. I'm going to cancel this. And she said, okay. And she never once questioned me, and it was great. And so I canceled my contract and paid back the advance. In some ways, it was scary because, you know, there are only five big publishers, and I worried about whether or not other publishers would be interested in working with me. And... um I just worried about what it would do to my career, but I have always had the luxury of a day job, and that has allowed me to make really solid ethical decisions about my work because uh, my rent was being was not being paid necessarily by my writing. I think it's really hard to be consistent ethically in a world where pretty much everything is unethical. And so I think we just make the best decisions that we can based on the current circumstances. And so it was a difficult decision, but it was also a very easy decision in that I knew I was not going to work for a company that thought it was good to do business with Milo. I was in a financial position to pay back the advance, and so I did. And I understood that there were other writers who wanted to pull their books from Simon & Schuster but could not afford, either career-wise or financially, to pull their books. And I totally understand that. You know, I think if you can't afford to say no in the same ways, you want to be able to take the stands that you can. So it's important to take a step back and look at your life and your circumstances and try and decide what stands am I in a good position to make and then follow through. I think follow through is more important than anything else. It can be a small stand. Just make it and stick to it. Do you hear that sound in her voice, ladies? That 
is the sound of conviction, and I love it, and I want to be just like you, Roxanne. I was so inspired by that. I hope you guys were too. No matter how much is in your bank account, figure out what you're passionate about. Take a stand and stick to it. Listening to these women today also makes me realize that the things that make me feel rich have nothing to do with money. Like, you know what makes me feel like a million bucks? Knowledge. Knowing stuff. (laughs) Knowing that I care about other people. That said, I do love a little luxury, like getting my nails done, going shopping, and getting nice makeup. Some of our upcoming storytellers, ahem, like Cecile Richards and Maria Menounos, have their own definitions of luxury. Luxurious to me is hanging out in my kitchen with my three kids, and sometimes Ollie, my dog, and sometimes my husband, Kirk, and cooking all day. A nice soft bathrobe feels luxurious to me. Making some fabulous feast. Soft bed sheets feel luxurious to me. You know, arguing uh, about what kind of pie that we want to make. Getting to sit in my yard and meditate feels luxurious to me. And for Miss Pat? Really expensive weave. (laughs) (laughs) My beautician makes my wigs. (laughs) Ain't nothing. You have me looking like a horse in Indianapolis. On this episode, you heard from Miss Pat, Sheza Shahid, and Roxanne Gay. We live for your comments, people. Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram and use that hashtag, HowItIs. You can always find us at hello-sunshine.com. Stay right where you are so you can listen to the next episode, which is all about something we do every single day. Work. Making moves in I'm Diane Guerrero, and I'm a badass queen. That is an extra special queen. Protector of justice, daughter of immigrants, change maker, and human lover. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lair, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Jillian Ferguson and Kara Hart. Our development producer is Mary Phillips Sandy. Sound design by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. By the way, did you like Queent? A Queent is just a Queen, but it's just a Queent. You know what I mean? It says it's just a little more flair, unless I haven't researched it. Maybe we should Google it. It's just an extra special queen, exactly. Ha <laughs> ha